0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 17, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. The next president will inherit an Iran that has had no diplomatic dealings with the United States for some time. How should he react? None of the options are good ones, but some are better than others. Justin Logan, Associate Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, comments. I hear people say, and it has confused me somewhat, Iran is a natural ally to the U.S., and I've never been completely comfortable with that statement because it can mean, I think, one of two things. One, yeah, we should engage them, we should talk to them, and maybe the political pressure will move upward and the, the leadership there will have to pay some sort of price because they do have a history of representative democracy. And the other is <laughs> Iran is a natural ally to the U.S., so we need to go and get rid of the leadership and we will as the story goes, be welcomed as liberators, all these uh, wonderful things, uh, a thousand flowers will bloom. Right.
1: That's a pretty sweeping statement, the business about Iran being sort of a natural ally. And I'm cynical enough that I'm not particularly uh, inclined toward the idea that there are sort of natural allies or natural uh, adversaries. A lot of people make that argument based on historical considerations and based on uh, certainly the current uh, objective of uh, doing things like combating al-Qaeda, which recently has been issuing statements critical of Iran. And there's sort of that natural sectarian tension between uh, terrorist groups like al-Qaeda uh, and Iran. But I think that the, the, the argument that there is some sort of uh, uh, button waiting to be pushed that will allow the uh, uh, otherwise perfectly aligned interests of Iran and the United States to, uh, to be revealed – uh, is a bit is quite a bit more sweeping than anything I'd be comfortable making.
0: You argue that things can get worse there for U.S. interests.
1: Sure. Um, The article that I wrote in The American Prospect talked a little bit about uh, the discussion of Iranian politics before the advent of the current president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And there was a real sense that Iranian politics was sort of irrelevant, that all of these people were committed uh, adversaries of the United States. Uh, that all of them were perfidious, all of them were uh, sort of vicious, vitriolic opponents of the state of Israel and on and on, and we discovered with the election of of Ahmadinejad that in fact things could get a lot worse, Uh, and he didn't campaign based on confrontation of the United States, but rather on sort of economic populism. He said that he would distribute the oil wealth to the lower classes and sort of just a fairly straightforward, fairly conventional economic populist message. Well, as one could guess, uh, the his economic policies have been disastrous for Iran. Uh, even with oil prices soaring as high as they are, uh, the Iranian economy has taken a significant downturn since the election of Ahmadinejad. So one would think, even within Iran's very, very imperfect political environment, that there would be a penalty to pay. Uh, for such mishandling of the economy. And there's going to be a presidential election next year, uh, although, again, within the imperfect political environment. So what you should have is a, a a newcomer president who's driven the economy into the ground and a very, very robust opposition to this. And what I surmise is that the only thing that could sort of salvage the hardliners' position in Iran politically is a sense that, The great Satan looms right over the horizon and we're going to have a war and do you want the squishes or the hardliners running the war? Um, And so therefore our messages and our signals that we send to Iran are very, very important in that context. We don't want to end up in a sort of a, a Fidel Castro situation where the hardliners inside of a country can falsely blame all of the economic problems on this external, whether it's for Castro, the Colossus to the north, or for Ahmadinejad, the great Satan. They've made disasters out of their economies on their own doing and should be revealed as such. So our policies are very important in that context for allowing these uh, fellows to uh, uh, bear the
0: penalties for their mishandling of the economy. Tougher talk is essentially helping the current Iranian leadership that is that is very unfriendly to the u s uh to sure we're providing cover for them sure I
1: mean there's sort of an aphorism particularly among Iran analysts in this context that the hardliners on both sides are each other's best friends that there is this feedback loop where uh, everything is interpreted as uh, in the in the most negative possible light, as supremely threatening, which of course on one's own side necessitates robust defensive measures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is, you know, you talk to a variety of Iran analysts of of right, different political stripes, different ideological stripes, and there is this sense that the hardliners on both sides are sort of feeding into each other's narrative uh, and and providing each other ammunition, and I think that's a pernicious. Uh, uh, condition and one that we should be working to try to break.
0: Aren't there risks, though, to trying to lower the temperature with Iran?
1: I think there are risks in any of the policies. I mean, we essentially have three uh, policy options at this point. Uh, We can continue on the path of trying to get more robust sanctions uh, on Iran, which presumably would then ultimately lead them to meeting our precondition that they suspend uranium enrichment. At which point we would come into negotiations with them over the nuclear program. So that's one policy. The second policy would be military action, which you hear sporadically come up every six or eight months or so. Some of the neoconservatives will come out and say, it's time to bomb Iran, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third option is is entering into negotiations without preconditions. That is to say, dropping this insistence on the suspension of uranium uranium enrichment and simply entering into negotiations. The problem with the first policy, I think, is that it doesn't show terribly much sign of working. For obvious reasons, uh, the Europeans and others are very very, very wary about doing anything to disrupt energy markets any further when you have petroleum products going at $140 a barrel. And the sanctions that we've gotten so far as a result are sort of nibbling around the periphery of the Iranian economy. They're targeting particular individuals, uh, but they're not getting at the real lifeline of the Iranian economy because that would be so detrimental to the West and to the powers that were imposing the sanctions. So you've had since May 2006, uh, the United States position is you suspend u- uranium enrichment and we'll enter into talks. The Iranians have said no, and the clock has ticked another two years and we have nothing to show for it. So I'm particularly, not particularly uh, uh uh, pessim- optimistic about that outcome, the the military option is one that I've written tens of thousands of words about, and if anybody is interested in uh, in my views on that, they can certainly uh, look at some of the publications on the Cato website. I think there would be a host of detrimental consequences again uh, that people can read about uh, on my website, and then there is also this third option of suspending this uh, uh, precondition that the Iranians suspend enrichment uh, and merely entering into negotiations now there are a whole number of perils and particularities about that option who would you negotiate with how would you know that that person had uh, authority to broker a deal, would human rights and all of these other issues be on the table? I'm not you know, sort of pretending that there is this uh, neat template that we can just glom onto and get an agreement done. Um, but even when you talk to European members of parliament, uh, and I'm not talking about sort of the European left, but mainstream members of European parliament, that's what they really would favor because they're seeing what I've sketched out, the clock running out nothing changing, and this chance that we're going to sort of stumble up to the finish line and then confront one of two unpalatable outcomes, either military action to try to slow down the Iranian nuclear program or acquiescence to an Iranian bomb. Um, And as I sort of mentioned, I think that negotiations are perilous and they could quite well fail. I mean, I don't mean to hold them out as a panacea or a sure thing, but it seems extraordinarily strange to me to be talking about military action before we've even proffered a deal in the first place. That is to say, these are the contours of, uh, of our deal. You could take it or leave it. And then if one concluded that military action would still be preferential to containing and deterring a nuclear Iran, that option is still on the table, which is to say diplomacy doesn't foreclose any option down the road. Um, so I, I that's all a very sort of long-winded way of saying, I think there are perils with each particular policy, but we need to weigh those perils against the other realistic policy options.
0: Are there any parallels that can be drawn between the U.S. experience uh, with Iran and the U.S. experience with Libya over the last couple of years?
1: I'm not an expert on the Libya case, and I'd be... Uh, but that uh,
0: seems to be a pretty clear-cut case where uh, you know a long stretch of diplomacy achieved uh, a, pr- a pretty real and effective result.
1: Right. You have this narrative that emerged... Uh, a few years ago, that one of the great vindications of the Iraq War, for example, was that it caused Libya to give up its weapons of mass destruction program um, and uh, sort of broker a deal with the United States. Um, and that's a, a false narrative. The diplomacy had started, uh, I think it was 1997, uh, as early as that, in the Clinton administration. And it had been a very painstaking, very low-profile, very sort of unglamorous, grinding pace of of diplomacy, uh, and I I do think, in 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 all candor, that the Iraq the demonstration effect of the Iraq War did have a you know a role in changing the Libyan calculus and saying, look, we've come along this this diplomatic track so far, and that doesn't look particularly appetizing. So let's bring this to a close. But I think that also illustrates how long and difficult and painstaking diplomacy is, in the sense that it took several years. Uh, even in a much less advanced uh, nuclear program, uh, to get a deal done. So that, that the point of the article was to say that U.S. posture in the world, in particular U.S. posture toward Iran, could play a role in, in, in giving the hardliners in Iran ammunition in the upcoming election. And we should be very, very wary of that. And I think that at the very least, lowering the temperature, lowering the all options on the table uh, uh, rhetoric would do a great deal to cause these fellows to have to take uh, responsibility, to have to pay the price for their utter mismanagement of the Iranian economy, because people are terribly disenchanted with that. And I think the only thing that could provide a sop to the hardliners uh, is a sense that war is coming
0: and they need the hardest line faction to deal with it. Justin Logan is Associate Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. His article on Iranian leadership appeared in the American Prospect. You can read it at Cato.org.